Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. I mean, most people find it easier to imagine the end of the world than they do imagining the end of capitalism. Imagining the end of capitalism. That's our task on this 200th anniversary of the birth of Karl Marx, the most influential theorist of capitalism. On today's show, Raj Patel helps us unpack the history of capitalism and how it has radically altered the ecology of this planet. Patel is the co-author with Jason W. Moore of the book A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Today, we hear Patel outline these seven cheaps and he explains the crisis capitalism is facing. In this crisis, Patel encourages us to see the possibility of a world beyond capitalism. Here is Raj Patel speaking at the Revolution University Weekend in Berkeley, California. It's, it's hard to, uh, again, to explain to people how it is that capitalism is going to end when we have been so thoroughly constructed. Uh, and so w- what I want to do is um, just sort of run through how it is that, that the, 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 the argument of this book works. Um, th- what we're saying is that in, uh, the capitalism is sort of underwritten by seven things, uh, and they are rendered cheap by capitalism, and they are running out. Those seven things are nature... Work, money, care, food, energy, and lives. The cheapness of all of these things is in peril for capitalism. Um, And again, if you want to understand that, uh, have you heard of the Anthropocene? You need to raise, raise your hand if you, you've, you've heard of the, the idea of the Anthropocene. So if you haven't heard of it, uh, the Anthropocene is, is this idea that if there is a future civilization that, that's going to uncover the fossil record, and uh, they'll be able to know that we were here because we've left some traces, like uh, you know, the, the, the isotopes from atmospheric nuclear tests uh, or plastic in the sea. You know, the, the, by 2050, there'll be more plastic in the sea than fish. Um, but another way of knowing that humans were here uh, is... Chicken bones. Um, this is the world's most popular bird, Gallus gallus domesticus, the chicken. Uh, there are 12 billion of them alive, alive today, uh, but not for long. Um, uh, humans go through them uh, fairly, fairly quickly. In any given year, uh, these days, about 50 billion chickens are born and uh, killed uh, for us to eat. Um, and how is it that there will be trillions of chicken bones Laid, laid into the fossil record? Well, because we, we've started eating quite a lot of them. Um, if you look at the United States, uh, it used to be that uh, Americans had chickens mainly for eggs. Uh, but after the Second World War, um, the meat industry ramped up its, its push to get us to eat more chicken. This particular uh, part of the industry, um, if you want a nickname for it, you, you can think of it as Big Bird. Um, uh, and uh, they've been very successful not just in the, in the United States in persuading us to eat now 90 pounds of it a year um, but uh, globally uh, we're starting to see uh, per person cons- consumption of chicken uh, approaching the, the sort of rates that Americans were had, had in the 1960s Right, uh, the, the meatification of the global diet uh, means that now globally every person is eating about 30 pounds of chicken a year um, now 
that's dependent on these seven cheap things. So I, I want to use chicken as a way of just getting into seven cheap things and how they're running out. So, for, for example, the, you know, the, we're, we're able to have these chickens because uh, the original jungle, the red jungle fowl, was taken from the jungles of Asia. Um, and its genetic material was used freely uh, to breed the kinds of chickens that are so large, it's, the breasts are so large, that the chickens can't walk. Uh, but this appropriation of nature and this ownership of nature uh, is, you know, is selective. If it's profitable, then you know, uh, capital will take it. Uh, but if it's not profitable, then it will be discarded. And so at the same time as we have 50 billion of, these, of, of certain kinds of birds, 50% of uh, chicken species um, that, that existed uh, you know, at the beginning of last century are now extinct. Uh, and this idea of treating nature as disposable uh, is something that we see in a, a range of, of sort of r- reports about uh, the, the world right now. Um, yeah, you, it, these are hard to see, uh, but if I can summarize it into, into one graph, uh, it would be this. Uh, that, um, uh, this is a graph of bad things, uh, and, and they're getting worse. Um, so the, the, it, but, but, but notice here, I mean, the, 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 the trouble with this is that it, you know, if, if we go through all of this stuff um, and we see how shitty things are getting, um, it's... Uh, it has this sort of Malthusian tint to it, right? That there's the idea that uh, populations are swelling and that, you know, that humans are uh, you know, just devouring the planet. Um, and I'm not here to praise Malthus, I'm here to bury him. Uh, this, is, this is not a Malthusian argument that I'm making. It's, it's sort of the opposite. Um, and uh, it, it's important to remember that because uh, I'm, I'm not like Malthus saying that, that uh, it's fecundity among the working class that's causing these problems. Uh, on the contrary, uh, I think it's capitalism that's causing these problems. Uh, and that's not something that Malthus ever said. Um, we'll get to that, but it's just important to, to observe that right now, because of capitalism, we're driving more and more of the planet towards a state shift. Uh, an irreversible change in the way that ecology works uh, that will radically transform the planet. Uh, that's not because of humans, it's because of capitalism. Um, but now, the, you know, uh, chickens don't turn themselves into nuggets by themselves. Uh, you need workers. Uh, and in the United States, workers are incredibly badly uh, paid in general, and particularly in the food industry, they are exploited viciously. Um, if you think about the chicken industry, uh, occupational illnesses are five, five times a higher rate in the chicken industry than, than in, uh, in, in regular occupations. Uh, carpal tunnels, seven times higher. Uh, repetitive strain, ten times higher. Uh, just to give you a sense, for every dollar that is spent on fast food chicken, three cents makes it to workers. Uh, and those w- would be the workers who are lucky enough to have some sort of uh, you know, uh, contractual relationship with the, with the, the chicken uh, production company. Uh, some workers uh, have been uh, brought onto the chicken line as part of rehabilitation or as part of outpatient services. Uh, these workers um, were paid 25 cents an hour, uh, and some workers have been made to work for free as part of their rehabilitation. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, 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 it's not just about the chicken industry. Of course, you know, in general, the food industry is premised on exploiting labor. Um, so if you go to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics and, and look, at their, look at their numbers, uh, take the lowest paid uh, jobs in the United States, order them by, by low median wage, and you start at sort of $9.25 an hour, uh, and at the bottom it's a handsome $10.58 an hour. But everything that's, yeah, that's highlighted is a food system job. Right, the, 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 some of the worst paid jobs in the United States are about food. 
uh, and the food system. Now, um, uh, while uh, you know, agencies like the National Restaurant Association uh, are, are trying to keep wages down, and there's, there's a new push, uh, for example, the, the, there's, a, there's something on uh, the president's desk at the moment that uh, the National Restaurant Association, the other NRA, have been pushing. Uh, they, they've been saying that uh, if workers are paid a living wage, uh, or, or paid, sorry, minimum wage, not living wage, minimum wage, um, then the owners of the restaurant can, can take back the tips that were given. So you know, you're presented a bill, you add a tip on it. Uh, that tip will go to the owner, to the bosses, uh, because the workers are being paid uh, are being paid minimum wage uh, instead of the two dollars and eighteen cents an hour, uh, which is the minimum tip wage. Um, so you know, wage theft is important, but there are other ways in which workers are stolen from. Uh, the National Chicken Association wants to do things like speed up this line. This is you know, th- this is part of their PR, um, and what they're showing is uh, the, the chicken line and women working on that chicken line. And what they want to do is make it go faster. Um, so at the moment, the chicken line runs at about 140 birds a minute, um, which, uh, this is, 140 birds a minute, um, but they want to bring it up to 200. Um, now, uh, th- that, uh, y- y- th- this oppression of workers is uh, global, but what you're seeing is that nonetheless workers are rising up and fighting back. Uh, and you're seeing this even in the heartland of what is considered to be cheap work in China. Uh, there's an increase in the number of strikes. Um, and cheap work in the place that jobs went to find cheap work is becoming increasingly uh, more expensive. And that's another trend. We're seeing the end of cheap nature. We're also seeing the end of cheap work. Um, but it's important to recognize also that, uh, you know, that workers' bodies are broken by, the, by, by production. So what happens to them? After they, 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 their bodies are broken, I mean, and their bodies are broken fairly systematically in um, in the chicken industry. This is uh, the U.S. government's assessment of the various injuries that uh, chicken workers are prone to. Well, what happens to them? Uh, in general, they are cast out back into the community, uh, and it's the community's job to care for them. Um, and that work falls disproportionately to women, and capitalism treats that as a subsidy. Um, so, I mean, to give you a sense of the magnitude of that subsidy, uh, in 1995, world uh, total output was around $33 trillion, um, but $16 trillion was unpaid work, of which, uh, and $11 trillion uh, was the, the number put on women's unpaid work. And the trouble is, uh, for capitalism, that uh, care is becoming more expensive. Um, you know, in every OECD country, just to think of healthcare as an example, uh, though care is much bigger than just healthcare. Care is uh, about community building, about teaching, about uh, compassion, about a range of things. But just in healthcare, healthcare costs are outstripping GDP everywhere. Uh, so cheap care is on the way out too. One of the ways that care is possible, though, is by making sure that people get to eat cheaply. Uh, chicken. Uh, is fed uh, uh, feed that comes uh, in, in the United States as a result of one and a quarter billion dollars of subsidy every year. One and a quarter billion dollars of, uh, of subsidy for the chicken. But workers need cheap food too. That's why you know, the, the, this sort of thing, uh, you know, the idea of the dollar burger, um, is a subsidy to the working class. 
Um, cheap food is, is important if you're being paid minimum, minimum wage. Cheap food is vital in order to be able to survive. And even then, 50 million Americans are food insecure. But it's not just about America. This is a global phenomenon. Um, it, you know, what, what this picture shows is just that uh, around the world, uh, industrial processed food is cheaper than um, fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and uh, in fact, you can see chicken there. Um, that, that red bar going the other way is chicken in Mexico. Um, chicken in Mexico was made substantially cheap, cheaper by NAFTA uh, because what we did is uh, dump our chicken in Mexico. Um, with the end of NAFTA, uh, chicken in Mexico will become that much more expensive, 75% more expensive, but 75% is a tariff rate that will be reimposed as a result of, of chicken, in NAFTA, uh, chicken uh, with the end of NAFTA. Um, but globally, this is running out as well. Because of climate change, uh, crop yields are uh, falling and will fall in perpetuity. Uh, all the major cereal crops are going, uh, yields are going down across the planet. The era of cheap food, where we can imagine you know, planting things and having a, a, you know, the climate favor us, that era is over. Um, one of the ways that you can increase crop yields has been traditionally to apply fertilizer. A fertilizer is basically uh, energy. Um, and the era of cheap energy is also running uh, to an end. I mean, you know, for, for chickens, in order to, to, to keep uh, chickens alive, you need cheap propane to heat the, the hen houses. Um, of course, that, that results in, in carbon emissions, uh, but that, that's, uh, you know, the, the, the possibility of, of fossil fuel uh, running our economy is also coming to an end. I mean, cheap oil, the era of cheap oil is, is, uh, is over. Uh, capital expenditure on getting oil out of the ground is going up and up. Um, last year, uh, only, uh, I mean, you know, of the projects that, um, you know, for, for extracting fossil fuel that, were, that happened, most of them were made possible because the U.S. government subsidized them. Um, in other words, uh, in order for fossil fuel to happen, you need an injection of cheap money. Uh, you need low interest uh, loans to be able to make fossil fuel happen, to make cheap, cheap energy happen. Uh, you also need it, of course, to make chicken happen. This is a franchise uh, that is uh, 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 subsidized by the Small Business Administration. The Small Business Administration will give your franchise a loan up to $2 million because every Kentucky fried, uh, franchise is a small business. Um, but uh, even with uh, the, you know, these, this giveaway of cheap money, uh, rates of profit are falling around the world. And if you look at interest rates, um, you know, and particularly the federal uh, interest rate, I mean, other than the spike in the 1980s, we're now at a time where interest rates are as low as it's pretty much possible to go. So the era of cheap money also at an end. And that's why we've returned to uh, one of the sort of darkest eras. Uh, and and uh, we're seeing a return uh, to the idea of cheap lives. Um, if you look at the, the people who are on the chicken line, it's uh, predominantly women and it's predominantly people of colour. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. On today's show, Raj Patel runs us through a history of capitalism in seven cheap things. The idea that some people are outside society is, uh, and are perhaps more closely a part of nature, is one of the original sort of founding uh, justifications for capitalism. Right? At the same time as you, you get cheap nature, um, you have certain visions of 
what humans, you know, which humans are part of society and what, which humans are part of nature. Um, so you know, in the United States, of course, we have that, that dark history. Uh, but it, it has mattered very much uh, that certain kinds of people are outside society, are uh, fair game, literally fair game. Uh, so this is the scalp of uh, Taoya Taduta, um, who was uh, known by white people as Little Crow. His scalp fetched a, a bounty of $500 because he was organizing a rebellion uh, against the spread of capitalism and the, I mean, the, the, the spread of, uh, of, of enclosure. He was, he, you know, he was hunted and killed, as were uh, the, the bison on which his, with which his people had um, a, a deep and intimate relationship. Um, these, uh, the, the, these skulls, of course, were crushed and turned back into fertilizer to be applied on the Great Plains. Um, but the idea of a certain kind of supremacy built into dominion not just over nature but over people is integral to the history of capitalism. I mean, this is a, a map of places colonized by Europe. Uh, red being uh, total colonization and the shaded area being uh, a zone of partial influence. Um, there's not much of the world that wasn't controlled by Europe as part of its desperate search for frontiers. Um, and we're still seeing the casual treatment of certain kinds of lives. Uh, today, there are 40 million slaves around the world, people in modern-day slavery. Uh, 25 million people living in forced labor, 15 uh, in forced marriage. Um, 71% of slaves are women. Uh, and if you look at the kinds of work that they're doing, uh, the, the, you know, the people in uh, forced labor and forced marriage are obviously uh, involved in agriculture and construction and manufacturing, but the, the largest proportion of them uh, is, in, uh, is in domestic work, in cheap care. And this, is, uh, this, this idea of cheap lives is something that, you know, that we are seeing a resurgence of. Um, it's, it's a response to the, the several crises of capitalism. And if you want a sort of image of you know, how, how this manifests itself in, in terms of you know, the, the complex of uh, capitalism and, say, chicken, then you can just look at this. Uh, you know, white man eating chicken on plane. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's one abominable, abominable orange thing eating another. Um, it's, uh, uh, and I mean th- that that idea uh, of uh, of supremacy over nature, and I mean this is, but it, it, what, what do we do? Um, so some of your comrades uh, and friends and family may say, well, you know, it, we can trust business to help us um, solve this problem, um, and so I, 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 if you have that uh, conversation, I imagine many of you do. Um, Here's something that I found very helpful. I, I was pointed to uh, this data here by the head of sustainability at Nestle, the, uh, one of the vice presidents for sustainability um, at Nestle. And so w- w- he, he, this is a graph that comes from those bomb-throwing anarchists at KPMG. Um, KPMG, uh, the big accountancy firm and consulting firm. Um, in 2012, they wrote a report called Expect the Unexpected, Building Business Value in a Changing World. So what they did was um, look at every industry and uh, look at their revenue, the earnings before uh, interest, taxes, depreciation, uh, and amortization. 
Um, and that's the, 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 the number in orange. Uh, and then in blue, what they did was look at the total environmental costs that came out of an industry as a percentage of their earnings. And so you know, even here, um, with some, you can tell the assumptions are very conservative because if you look at oil and gas, the, the, the biggest orange bar, uh, the oil and gas industry has uh, revenue at $670 billion. And uh, KPMG thinks that their, their external environmental footprint is only 23% of that. Um, I, I think that that's a very low assessment of what the oil and gas industry does. But let, 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 let's take them at their word and look at the food industry. In the food industry, uh, revenue is $89 billion, but the environmental costs, according to KPMG, who just told us that the, the oil and gas industry is, is sustainable, um, in the food industry, uh, the, the food production footprint is 224% of earnings. What does that mean? It means that there is no sustainable way that uh, the food industry can survive. They either have to choose doing you know, uh, sustainability or they have to choose profit, and they choose profit. Uh, so when, you know, when people say, well, you know, as long as we buy organic... Uh, as long as we shop green and you know, buy the right things, then uh, everything will be fine. You can point them to the same data that Nestle points me towards. Right? And you can say to them, look, even the industry themselves acknowledge that this is the case. They can't make it work. Not with, this, with the rules of capitalism that we have right now. So then the question is, well, what do we do? Well, I think first, the first thing we do is acknowledge the problem. Um, we have to acknowledge that we are... Uh, at the precipice of a massive state change, uh, a state shift in, in the way that the world works. Um, but it's not the Anthropocene. Uh, you know, the idea of Anthropos is, is the idea that it's humans being humans, or you know, in, in the same way that boys will be boys, or snakes will be snakes, or whatever it is. Um, but, but this isn't about humans at all. Uh, we have plenty of human societies that have done... You know, one doesn't have to romanticize indigenous people to observe uh, that there have been uh, several indigenous societies that haven't f***ed up the planet. Right? Uh, this is not a romantic view of indigenous people. It's just to observe that the way that some indigenous societies have operated has not resulted in the entire destruction of the planet. Um, so it's not about being human. It's about capitalism. So let's call it the capitalocene. That, that's a, a more accurate way of describing the situation we're in at the moment. And then that helps us understand how it is that we have to change the terms on which... Uh, on which we move forward. If, 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 you know, essentially what, what we're doing in this book is arguing uh, that capitalism is coming to an end, we, and now the, the hard part is imagining what happens next. And luckily we have, we have lots of movements and organizations that are doing that. Um, you know, when it comes to you know, fighting back against cheap lives. Of course, the movement for black lives is an incredible, uh, you know, a, a, an incredible movement. Uh, and what I love about them is how joined up their thinking is. It's not just uh, about a fight against police brutality. It's uh, a, 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 a fairly radical and, and in, in moments, revolutionary transformation. Um, just like uh, the, the movement, just like their the, the forebears. The, the, I mean, the Black Panthers. Um, started off being the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Uh, but in the end, they recognized the, the survival, you know, they recognized that there was a, a, a dignified emergency among the poor 
And so the Black Panthers recognized the need to be able to, to, to address that. And so they did things like um, you know, uh, school meals and free lunches, uh, so free, free food and free shoes and free, uh, free accompanying home for the elderly, uh, free pharmacies, free research into sickle cell anemia, a range of things. Right? It was joined up. It wasn't just about fighting police brutality, but it was about imagining what happens after capitalism. Uh, what they were doing was looking at survival, but not just survival, but survival pending revolution. That was the, their, their, their model. Um, but you know, when it comes to, to, to cheap lives, um, you know, we also have groups like Native Lives Matter. And uh, again, First Nations uh, across you know, settler colonies like ours, um, I mean, you know, and it's important to recognize that the United States is a settler society. Uh, but in, uh, in a range of settler societies, the Native Lives Matter uh, movements have been going for quite some time. Uh, you ask the Zapatistas, they've been, they've been fighting their fight for 500 years. Um, and uh, similarly, you, you see uh, you know, uh, people making sort of similar sort of revolutionary transformations or, or claims uh, in, uh, when it comes to energy, uh, and particularly when it comes to money. I, 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 I am particularly uh, uh, seized by the idea... Uh, of the, that the opposite of cheap money is around not just debt forgiveness, um, but reparations. I, I want to end uh, with just another example of what it might be like for us to reimagine our relationship with nature and with food. These are uh, Haida and uh, Coast Salish, uh, Coastal Salish totems. Um, the Haida and the Coastal Salish people are uh, on the border of what is now called Canada and the United States. Um, uh, in the, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and they have uh, something called a salmon festival. Have you, have you heard of the salmon festival? Is anyone here? Um, those of you who haven't, it's, it's, an, it's a really interesting way of relating both to nature and to food. I mean, here in California, of course, the way we relate to nature is by going to a state park, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and nature is the sort of thing that you drive to be able to experience. Uh, and that, that understanding of what nature is, uh, is utterly alien to almost every other human civilization. And instead, for example, right now uh, we're in uh, the, the salmon season. The salmon season begins when, the, you know, for example, with the first coho making it up the, uh, up the river. Um, and that fish is taken out of the water and it is celebrated for 10 days. Uh, there is a, uh, a celebration of the treaty between humans and uh, the Coho people. And that celebration not only allows you know, 10 days of salmon to get up the stream to spawn without being fished at all, um, but it's a recognition of humans' dependence on nature, but not as uh, uh, exploiting it, but as a treaty. You only have treaties between sovereign people. You have treaties between peers. Uh, and the idea of a treaty between humans and the salmon people, you may say, well, look, the salmon didn't do much negotiating there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but actually, the idea that, that you are approaching these other living things not as uh, a resource for you to exploit ad infinitum or until, until they're extinct, and you know, the last commercial fish catch will be landed in 2047. Um, but instead as, uh, as beings who are part of you, in the web, connected to you through the web of life. That's a very different way of thinking about the world and thinking about nature um, and thinking about food. Uh, and uh, I think that, that it's those kinds of models that require us in a very deep and collective way, not, not a kind of tree-hugging individual way of, I've, I've decided to make a treaty with this shrub 
um, uh, but, but instead a, a very you know, a collective and societal way uh, to, to, to reorient ourselves towards nature. And I think that, that there are First Nations that offer not just a, an idea of how to do that, um, but, uh, but actually sort of living examples that, that, that we might learn from uh, rather than exterminate. Raj Patel speaking at the Revolution University Weekend, Berkeley, California, in October 2017. Raj Patel is an award-winning writer, activist and academic. He's the co-author, with Jason W. Moore, of the book A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, published in Australia by Black Ink. Patel also co-produces a food politics podcast. It's called The Secret Ingredient, and it comes out of Radio KUT in Austin, Texas. You've been listening to Earth Matters. Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country. If you'd like to get in contact with Earth Matters, you can call the station on 03 9419 8377. You can send us an email on earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. Thank you.